The blockade at the Brady Road landfill in Winnipeg remains, defying city order. Families' deportations stopped thanks to the UN. The price of tomatoes has soared in India, creating a crisis for farmers and low-income Indians alike. And an update on the NATO meeting ongoing in Lithuania. Good morning. It's Tuesday, July 11th. I'm Nora, and here are your headlines. Yesterday, dozens of protesters continued to block access to the Brady Road landfill in Winnipeg. The city had ordered them to leave, but the group refused. The blockade started on Thursday in response to the Manitoba government's refusal to search another landfill, called Prairie Green, for the remains of Morgan Harris and Mercedes Myron. Both women's bodies are believed to have been dumped there. The city ordered everyone to leave by noon yesterday. The order was issued on Friday. Grand Chief of the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs Kathy Merrick said that the site is important. She told the Canadian Press this, quote, It has served as a powerful reminder of the urgent need to address the systemic issues perpetuating violence against First Nations women and girls in our province. It's a place where we have gathered to remind our missing loved ones and those who have tried to stop us that we won't give up on these women, unquote. The blockade is being held with tires and wood while people gather, create art, and pray. A white man came to the site and dumped soil on a mural that had been painted in remembrance of murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls. After which, when folks at the camp realized that there was cedar in the soil, CBC News reported that protesters swept the wood chips into a circle around the mural. Diane Bousquet told CBC in an unbylined article this, quote, Cedars are protection medicine, and we decided that we are going to include it into our art piece and circle her in protection. We turned an ugly into a beautiful here. That's what our people are known for doing. Next, another story of resistance, and this one has a happy ending for now. Remember the Ajibade Huilar family? They live in Trois-Rivières, and both parents were facing deportation. Arlen Huilar was being deported to the Philippines, and David Ajibad was being deported to Nigeria. Canada was trying to figure out where to send their three children, which they originally ordered to be separated. David was deported, but Arlen had her deportation stayed for a week while the government figured out if her youngest child could be deported to the Philippines, too. Well, the United Nations Human Rights Committee intervened and asked the federal government to suspend Arlen and her children's deportation. Arlen got the good news when they got home from church on the weekend. CBSA canceled the deportation as Canada looks to see if they can be granted permanent residence status on humanitarian grounds. Quote, it was a shock and the kids were jumping for joy, unquote, Arlen told the CBC, as reported by Steve Rukavina. In its first decision, the youngest son was supposed to be deported to Nigeria, while the older two would be sent to the Philippines. A federal court ruled that he shouldn't be separated from his siblings, and so ordered that the children be separated instead from their father. Their lawyer, Sabrina Kosim, has said that they've been hoping David will be able to come back to Canada soon. The family entered Canada in 2019 through Roxham Road. They settled in Trois-Rivières while they waited for their refugee claims. The children enrolled in school, the parents found work, and both Arlen and David have advanced in their respective jobs. They applied for permanent resident status on humanitarian grounds back in March, but that process takes two years. In the meantime, a federal court ordered their deportation. They're hopeful that they'll be successful in their permanent residence claim. 
What great news for this family, though what a cruel and useless system to force the family through this. What does Canada gain from treating people like this? Absolutely nothing. It's shameful and even more shameful that it took the UN to intervene to get the decision reversed. The federal government didn't respond to requests from CBC for comment on Monday. Now to international news. The Guardian is reporting that there is a tomato crisis in India, and it has far-reaching and worrying impacts. The price of tomatoes has soared by 400%, triggered by a national shortage. Climate catastrophe has decimated tomato crops. The unusual amount of rain has triggered a fungus that has been killing the plants. Prices are so high that low-income families cannot afford them. The Guardian, in an article that has already informed us that the tomato is a staple in Indian food, as if that isn't common knowledge or is it somehow surprising, also helpfully explains the shortage through the lens of McDonald's. The company has stopped serving tomatoes because of the shortage. You have to read on past the McDonald's information to actually hear from a farmer. They finally talked to Arvind Malik, a farmer from the Kurukshetra district of Haryana, who said that back in February, the leaves of the plants started drying up. Wild temperature fluctuations was the culprit. Farmers had to pay for expensive fungicides to try and save what they could, but much of the crops were already ruined. Malik has only harvested half of what he would normally sell by now, and he's heavily in debt as a result. Making the situation worse was that a few months ago, commercial prices for tomatoes were so low that farmers couldn't sell them at a high enough price to even cover their costs. The farmers stopped picking tomatoes because it was too expensive to pick them and sell them for nothing. But by the time prices shot up, they only had rotten leftovers. Now, it's not just tomatoes. Other crops like onions, ginger, and chilies have also been impacted. This is happening at the same time that torrential rains have killed at least 37 people in the north of the country. Many villages have been isolated by flooding and landslides are causing havoc in many different regions. And finally, two updates from the NATO meeting. President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has agreed to support Sweden's request to join NATO. Turkey had been blocking Sweden's application, saying that the country had been hosting Kurdish militants. Any NATO member can veto the membership of any new state. The chorus of reactions from other NATO members said that this will make everyone safer. Phew, well, that's good news. Sweden, along with Finland, had neither been members of NATO, though when Russia invaded Ukraine, both countries sought membership in the military alliance. Finland joined in April. The head of NATO, Jan Stoltenberg, said this, according to the BBC, quote, Turkey and Sweden had addressed Turkey's legitimate security concerns, and as a result, Sweden has amended its constitution, changed its laws, expanded its counterterrorism operation against the Kurdistan Workers' Party, and resumed arms exports to Turkey, unquote. <laughs> That's all it takes to join NATO, eh? That's it? Oh, Okay. This is, I mean, I just love how it's always under the guise of like, this is such a democratic decision for a country to make. It's like, is it? Okay. Erdogan seemingly tried to link his decision about Sweden to his desire to have Turkey let into the EU. EU officials rejected his request, saying that they're separate issues. But the EU did say that they'd be working to, quote unquote, reinvigorate the process that has been stalled for years. Turkey is definitely a country to pay attention to in relation to the war in Ukraine. 
They're the only NATO country that actually has the ear of Vladimir Putin, and they've played a positive role to ensure that Ukraine can continue to export its grains. Though they also this past weekend allowed five former commanders of the Ukrainian garrison at Mariupol to fly back to Kiev after a visit from Vladimir Zelensky. The commanders were part of a prisoner exchange last year, and Russia had expected the men to stay in Turkey until the end of the war. The BBC reports that Russian officials were quote-unquote furious at the quote-unquote surprise move. Erdogan also scored another big victory at this meeting. He's been trying to secure 80 F-15 fighter jets from the U.S. While Biden has been supportive of this, Congress has not been. But this morning, the Washington Post reports that key politicians may be changing their tune. Erdogan thanked Biden for his work in getting him the jets. The other big news at this meeting was, of course, Ukraine's membership in NATO. There's no question, neither from NATO or from the Ukraine, that membership into the military pact isn't going to happen while the war is on. BBC reports this, quote, All alliance members agree that Ukraine cannot join the bloc during the war, amid fears that this would lead to direct conflict with a nuclear-armed Russia. BBC reports that Zelensky has said as much as well. But Ukraine wants assurances that they will be admitted into the military alliance after the war. While some Eastern European members are, quote, pressing for a fast-track membership, unquote, other countries, Germany and the U.S. included, are less enthusiastic. From Russia, an official speaking on behalf of Putin said this, quote, he warned that Ukraine's membership in NATO would have negative consequences for the entire security architecture, which is half destroyed as it is in Europe. Ukrainian membership would represent an absolute danger, threat to our country, which will require all of us quite a firm and clear reaction, unquote. Those are your headlines for Tuesday, July 11th. I'm Nora. It's Sandy and Nora Day. So stay tuned. You will hear a new episode of Sandy and Nora dropping in a couple of hours. You're listening to this podcast at SandyNora.com on the Real News Podcast Network and syndicated on campus radio stations across Canada. I hope you have a great Tuesday.